and essentially where the the discussion has led to the point that Rav Chaim Litzata points to the fact that Gilu Yehudai, that the full understanding of Hashem's oneness and all of the dimensions of understanding Hashem's oneness is the um, the ultimate the ultimate goal of creation, as the Navi says it is, and uh, he's pointed out why it's so significant in many different ways, and we've spent a lot of time in explaining why it's so significant. And last time we even spoke somewhat in preparation for what we're going to learn this evening. We spoke about the fact how there are two things that are running concurrently. One being the the ultimate benefit of man, being the, in other words, to be able to re- reach a state of shlemus, to reach a state of, wholes- to, of wholesomeness and perfection, that being by having a true connection to God, which means a true understanding of God, a true understanding of God, Rav Mashchayim Litzata says, is ultimately an understanding God's oneness. So that was one that was one sort of one path that Rav Chaim Litzata was blazing. The good of man, the good of man is Shlemus. Shlemus means the understanding and the connection to God. The understanding of God is Yehudo, is oneness. And then there was another path that was running parallel to that, and that was that Rav Chaim Litzata said that whatever the good is that we're defining to be the ultimate for man, that it should be reached through Bechira, that it should be reached through the choice of man and through the challenge that those choices present to man, the Bechira aspect of it. We went at length to explain that the ultimate is not the Bechira. The ultimate is the goal of what we reach after the Bechira. But in order for that benefit to be of the supremest level, for man to reach it through his choice is the ultimate. In other words, it's possible for man to reach an understanding of God's oneness without choice, by God imposing the clarity of his oneness without man choosing to see it, but by God making it very obvious. But that wouldn't be the ultimate good of man, because then man wouldn't have, ha, wouldn't have worked for it, wouldn't have really acquired it in, in a deep way, and the whole developmental process of man would have been left totally undeveloped. So there's the second concept that even if we define what is the goal of ultimate benefit, but the process by which we reach that ultimate goal is also significant in it being an ultimate benefit. And that's the process of Bechira. Right? So there were t- these two paths that Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata was, was setting forth for us. What we'll hopefully get to this evening, which I've said twice already and not gotten to it, what we'll try to get to this evening is that Rav Chaim Litzata is going to explain how the particular goal of revealing Hashem's oneness works out so well with the need for Bechira being the, the ultimate process. In other words, we're talking about ultimate goal and ultimate process. Ultimate goal is God's oneness. Ultimate process is Bechira. What Rav Chaim Litzata is going to say is that it's not a coincidence that the ultimate goal actually facilitates the ultimate process. In other words, it being that this is the ultimate goal, until we reach that goal, we have a condition that allows for the ultimate process. 
And this is what Rav Meshachayim Litzat is going to develop. In other words, since we're going in the direction of that ultimate goal, be, and not yet being there, the fact that we're not there and we're trying to get there is precisely that which allows for the, for the desirable process, for that ultimate process of Bechir. And this is what Rav Meshachayim Litzat is going to explain tonight. So again, two things Rav Meshachayim Litzat is going to develop this evening. First of all, why is it that Hashem's oneness is, is the singular aspect of God that becomes the ultimate goal for man? This he's going to go into detail, and then he's going to show how after that is the single most significant aspect that man can attain in the understanding of God, how it actually contributes to that ultimate process. In other words, being that that becomes the goal, how that actually helps and creates the process which is so significant at the same at the same time. This is essentially what Ramaj Khamlatsat is going to develop tonight and let's let's get into it now. Amahasekel, so the intellect says, what we really need to understand very, very well. We have to be able to really analyze now in the perspective of everything that we've learned up to this point, what are the shortcomings? What are the lacks in creation? Now, we can write an equation already. What is the equation that we can write? That all of the chesronos in the in Bria, all of the lacks that we find in creation that are for us to fulfill, would all be lacks that would be going in what direction? They would be chesronos that would be concealing the oneness of God. In other words, being that the goal is to reveal one, the oneness and it's not that there because we have the process to get there. So what is the chesronos? What is this that we're trying to complete? The lack of that, of that clarity. So we have to, we have to analyze that. It would be necessary to understand the, all of the negative things that exist in creation. And the first thing that we have to make a statement of is that when we enter into the Bria, when we enter into creation, and we find the situation of Chesronos, we find the situation where there are deficiencies, where there are lacks, the first thing that we have to know is that what we're moving into and what we're seeing as deficiencies in the creation is not a manifestation of God's ability, but is a manifestation of God's will. In other words, God wanted deficiency, so therefore He created something that would allow for the, the, His will. In other words, He wanted deficiency because He had something to gain by creating the world with deficiency, because it would create the challenge of man. So therefore, He came up with this creation which had built into it deficiencies. Why? Because there was an ultimate purpose to it. So the first thing that Rav Meshachayim Litzat is saying is, and this is a very important yesod, a very important principle that Rav Meshachayim Litzat is going to reiterate in many different ways throughout the Sefer, that when you enter into the Bria, when you enter into the scene and you see deficiency either in the world around you or in yourself, right, what's my attitude? Is my attitude simply, well, God made it so it's good? 
So Ramaj Khan says, no, don't take it so superficially. That God made it is important to know, as we've discussed in the past. It doesn't come from another source. But don't think that this is the cousin of God. Don't think that this is the compatible creation that's, is, you know, that is an expression of who God is. It's an expression of, God, of a plan of God. It's an expression of a scheme of God. But it's not Chayk Shleimusay. It's not, it's not, in other words, this is me. In other words, God doesn't look and point at something in creation and say, this deficient thing or this deficient quality, I want you to know this is me. Right? It's not. It's Shalaika Chayk Shleimusay. When we look at it, it's not compatible with the essence of God. It's compatible with His will. He wants it there because of a scheme, because of a plan. But it's not shchak shleimusay. like we've explained, there are a lot of ramifications to this statement that I just made now, or that Rav Meshachem Litzata just made. There are a lot of implications philosophically. There are many, many uh, ramifications to this. Asher alke nichshulubam hapayshim ish lefidarkei hara lechalamayla, and being from. Uh, Nachi is uh, crying. And it was because of this challenge of seeing something deficient in creation and not being able to understand if God created all, where does this deficiency come from? So then everybody went his path. It either comes from an opposite God, or it, there is no God altogether, or God gave it over to different forces. Everybody took his path. But where was the stumbling block? The stumbling block philosophically was that one couldn't reconcile a created world with deficiency with the belief in a perfect creator. In other words, if, if the Creator is perfect, so where does it come that the created being is imperfect? Right? So that was the major philosophical stumbling block. And if you read through many major philosophies, that we, that's where the problem was. I mean, all through the generations, that's where the problem was. So, as we've elucidated this before, Kivari Lefish Musa Yizbarak Loi Hayoloi Lasa Lavad. If God would only be creating that which is compatible with who He is as a perfect creator, there would only be good things created. Now I am going to begin to give you an understanding that which is much clearer. Okay? When we say that God is one, what are we saying by that? We are saying that there is no other. There is no opposite to him. That there is nothing that holds him back. And to exclude from all of the false philosophies that were spoken of before. So it comes out, It's not only necessary for us to define God in terms of positive things, but we also have to, at the same time, define God by saying what's not. Okay? Another. Let's 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 explain. All right. Uh, let's explain what what Rav Meshachayim Latzata is saying over here. What Rav Meshachayim Latzata is saying over here is that when we're talking about 
God being one, or better yet, God being singular in his function, God being unique in his function, by definition, is it sufficient to just define the positive qualities of God? Or you also have to say the positive qualities of God and how God is unique in those qualities. Do you follow what I'm saying? In other words, once there is a concept of God's oneness, which doesn't mean that there's only one God, but it also means that he's singular. He stands, he's outstanding in his attributes. Or he's unique in his attributes. Once you use the word unique, outstanding, in other words, that he stands in his own right, all by himself, in a category all of his own. What is that by definition? That is a definition of exclusion. That means that when you say that it's not enough to say that God is wise. When one is, one is defining God as being unique, one would have to say that God is wisdom is beyond all other wisdom. So what is that? That's a definition. That's not only a positive definition of wisdom, but that's a definition of, of, of exclusion. In other words, we're trying to reach the definition by the process of exclusion. There are many, many wise things, there are many, many strong things, there are many, many compassionate things, but nothing like God. So we're coming to the definition of God through a process of what? Of exclusion. There's nobody else that holds the same rank. There's nobody else that holds the same level. So it's a definition by exclusion. Okay. Do you follow what I'm saying? So this is what Rav Meshachem Latzat is saying. So Rav Meshachem Latzat is saying that once we're dealing with defining God in terms of oneness, it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient just to define the qualities in and of themselves, but the qualities have to be defined in an exclusive nature. In an exclusive nature, it means that you have to exclude everything else to, to give it an exclusive nature. Right? This is what Ramesh Khaimlatsata is pointing out over here. We'll see what he's going to do with this. But that's what he's saying. Now that I've told you that oneness is the central concept, so now every definition is not only the definition of the positive, but it's also by definition an exclusive definition, which means that whatever the, whatever we are defining about God, we're saying, and there is nothing else that's like that, or similar to that, or equal to that. So it's a definition that now takes in um, um, an exclusive aspect. Do, do you follow what I'm saying? And that's what he's trying to say here. I'm repeating the last sentence. It's not sufficient just to explain the positive aspect. But it becomes necessary to exclude the opposite, to exclude any other. Right? Now, but any other aspect that we would talk about right, doesn't need this exclusiveness. Okay? Now let me explain this and then we'll see this inside. Alright, what Ramesh Khaimatsat is saying like this, this is a little bit philosophical, but you'll see the why he's taking out the time to explain this. What he's saying is essentially the following thing. Let's take, for instance, if I would make a statement that the most important way to relate to Hashem is to relate to His wisdom, to understand His wisdom. Right? Not to understand His uniqueness, to understand His wisdom. 
So then what would I what what would I endeavor to do? I would try to take every work of his, every expression of his wisdom, and try to understand the extent of that wisdom. Now, would anything would I have a deeper appreciation of his wisdom by looking at uh, another situation in which wisdom is absent? Would that give me a better understanding of the wisdom? In other words, my experience with the fool will give me a better definition of wisdom? It's not going to give me a better definition of wisdom. A fool is a fool. But that doesn't mean that understanding the fool is going to give me a better grasp of a, of a wise person. A, a fool doesn't have the wisdom. So it's, it's an absence of wisdom. But by being exposed to an absence of wisdom, that's not going to give me a better understanding of wisdom. Right. Or take, for instance, um, a person that doesn't have any power. So by lo- looking at a person that doesn't have any power, that doesn't give me a better appreciation of power. I mean, I see a difference between a person with power and a person without power. But that's not the definition. Is the definition of wisdom the lack of foolishness? That's not what the definition, for instance, in terms of wisdom. Let's use that as an example. That's not the definition. Or compassion, the lack of cruelty. That's not the definition of wisdom, of compassion. The lack of cruelty. Look at a cruel person. Ah, you want to know? Hashem is compassionate. Look at this cruel person. This is what Hashem isn't. That's not a grasp of compassion. Do you follow what I'm saying? So in any other attribute, one doesn't come, one doesn't come to realize it through the absence of it. The only attribute that one comes to realize through the absence of it is oneness. That's, in other words, of all of the attributes of God that we can, that we can, that we can grasp, right, what will help us by its absence to get to understanding it is oneness. In other words, if I'll have five different pictures of powerful people and I'll say, well, this is all nothing compared to God. So then those five situations of powerful people helped me understand the uniqueness of God in that attribute, his oneness. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? So in other words, the, the, the lack of that particular thing actually gives me a window in. In other words, having all of the different examples, and then I say, ah, but God is above all of this. God is greater than all of this. So then everything that exists which is absent of it helps me to get there. While if, uh, on the other hand, if we would be talking about any other attribute of God, it wouldn't work that way. In other words, if God would flood the world with fools, so then we wouldn't stand before Hashem and say, thanks for making so many fools because now I appreciate your wisdom. That's not a way, that doesn't get, that doesn't get you into a grasp of his wisdom. So what is Rav Meshacham Litzatah saying? Let's just get the principles and then I'll show you why this whole thing is significant. What Rav Meshacham Litzatah is saying is that the definition of God's oneness is a definition of exclusiveness. Exclusiveness means to exclude other things. So all the things that are excluded actually help me in defining the exclusiveness. In other words, if I have a whole bunch of examples and I say, well, this is all, doesn't come near what we're really talking about, so by those things being there, that gives me even a better grasp of how exclusive the thing is. Do you follow what I'm saying? In exclusiveness, it helps. Because you're saying it's not any of these things. 
in exclusiveness it's a definition but in any other attribute it's not a, a definition now what he's going to do with this we'll see soon but that's what he's developing here now Perish Bederek Marshall. let's use an example Begeder HaChochma and HaSichlos when we're trying to understand the, the value of wisdom we're not going to get an appreciation of wisdom by understanding the fool Right? Because wisdom, the appreciation of wisdom, the 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 the, the, uh, the extent of wisdom, is the positiveness of it, not the lack of it in another situation. Right? Now, a person wants to understand chasidus. He wants to understand super-righteousness. So what are you going to do? You're going to give him ain't shayich hara. So God is going to create evil in order to give you an appreciation of chasidus. Right? We're up to the new sheets? Okay. Ach begeder. Now, ki gidru hu lasis tivim Because chasidus is the ability to do good with all. Right? And that's a positive thing in and of itself. It's not just the absence of negative. It's something very positive in and of itself. Now, ach begeder hayichud shayech hahepech. But when we're talking about defining uniqueness or exclusiveness, then there is a function of of all the things that are opposite or, or all the things that stand outside of it. Because the whole point that you're trying to say is that you stand, you're outstanding. That means there are a lot of things and you stand out. So there's a function for everything in order to point out how you stand out. Right? Now, so when it comes to any other mile, any other attribute of God, the definition of it would be in and of its own, in, in and of itself. But if the goal is understanding God's exclusiveness, so then the way to learn God's uniqueness would be to learn everything else and then show the exclusiveness. That's what he's projecting. Now, where this is going to go, it's going to go in a couple of directions. Right? He's, going to, he's going to develop two things here. He's going to develop, firstly, that therefore Yichud creates the possibility for Bechira. Because if the goal becomes to understand God's uniqueness, so then it's a process of have, being um, presented with everything and then slowly coming to realize the uniqueness. So you could have all of the opposites available and then you struggle with all of the opposites until you come to see the most outstanding feature. So it facilitates the process of Bechira. That's number one. Number two, it also facilitates something which is in human ability. To define something just in positive terms, there's a point where the human being has to stop. There's a limitation because I can't understand more than what I am myself. Let's say I make a, a project of understanding God's wisdom. I, God is only as wise as I am because I can't understand His wisdom beyond my own. The most I can do is I can make a statement of faith that I believe that he, this is a very smart thing, but to me it's, it's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense to me. I, but th- there's a limitation. While if the function is uniqueness, 
that's something that I can understand. In other words, because uniqueness is, is, is a definition of comparison. There's a lot of things in front of me, and this is the most outstanding of the things. That's a definition for itself. Of everything that's here, this is the most outstanding. This is the most unique. This stands by itself. That's a, that's a definition that's within grasp. It doesn't tell me the extent of wisdom. It doesn't tell me the extent of compassion. But in terms of exclusiveness, it's a definition. He's exclusive in his wisdom. He's exclusive in his compassion. That's within the human grasp. Because that, all you need is what's in front of you. And based upon what's in front of you, you're saying of everything that's in front of me, God is exclusive. So, that's with, so there are two things. Number one, it's within human grasp. Number two, it facilitates a whole you know, panorama of possibilities of things being brought in in order to, to come to this eventual realization of uniqueness. The fact that you, it'll present with you, you with everything else, so that, that gives you the whole process of Bechira. I believe in this, and then I come to realize that this is only second class compared to God. I believe in this, and then I come to realize that it's only second class in comparison to God. I come to realize that this is also it's second fiddle. In other words, this is a process, but it's a process that needs choice and experience. And he's going to show how this is true. Right, this is what he's going to develop. Now, Atahin Charaya. Now, now he's going what I just told you these two functions of, of uniqueness number one that it's within human grasp number two that it, it facilitates the process of Bechira those are the two things that he's going to explain now so he says now look at this were God to, to want to reveal any other of his attributes of perfection, since by definition all they are is the definition of something positive, so all the only things that would the God would create in his world would be things that would be as close to those good things as possible. So that how would we understand God's wisdom? Only by God creating things that are as close to his wisdom as possible that would be in our grasp. God wouldn't create negative things or evil things or bad things or foolish things because those things wouldn't help us in understanding God's wisdom. In other words, God says, I want you to understand me. Now, if God would have said, I want you to understand my wisdom, what would God give us in terms of educational tools? He would have to give us people that would, people that would be very wise, situations that would be very revealing in terms of their wisdom. And then we could say, ah, from this wisdom, I get a, an idea of God's wisdom. But would there be the possibility for the creation of negative things or things that are absent of wisdom or absent of meaning? There would be no place for those things because those things wouldn't help me along my path of understanding. So why should they be, be in the world? If they're not going to get me to the goal, if they're not going to give me a better understanding of God, why should bother God bother creating them? Okay? Now, but if God wants to teach us and he wants us to know his exclusiveness. Ah, which means that by definition it means the exclusion of negative. It means the exclusion of everything else. That there is nothing else that's significant or valuable, or as as absolute in in existence and substantial in its existence. So then the creation of of every form of creation 
has a place because every other form of creation has the has the has the lesson in it that even though this exists and it's a power and it's a force and it does this and it does that but don't think for a minute that it ever comes close to what the existence of God is then it has a it place hina shaykh lasasara so now there's the possibility to create negative things and to then say that all of these things either by the process that man learns them that they're not absolute they're not the same they're not on the same level with God they don't have the same meaning they don't have the same value that becomes a process and then we can see all of the, the concept of exclusiveness uh, very clearly and don't make the mistake don't make the mistake of saying no you can create foolishness in order to be able to appreciate wisdom and to understand righteousness you have to show cruelty with the claim that nothing is under- appreciated except with its opposite so he says it's not true. Every other attribute is its ultimate value is not because it's not something negative, but it's because of a positive aspect that it has within itself. Right? When you say a person is wise, the value of, of wisdom is what? Because he's not a fool? Or because there's an inherent value to wisdom? Because there's an inherent value to wisdom. So throwing all the other things into the picture is just confusing it. It doesn't give me... Uh, but all of the nonsense in this world can help us in understanding the exclusiveness of, of God. Because that, you, then you're talking about supremacy supremacy through comparison you need something to compare when you talk about for instance the word of supremacy supremacy over what you need you need something to deal with so then it allows it right and everything could then fall into that plan now and it's very important that when a person is learning this kind of wisdom, this kind of philosophy, that one doesn't confuse themselves and, 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 uh, and assume that the same way that you learn ex- um, exclusiveness, you can learn wisdom also from the opposite. It's very important to see that distinction. Now, Amr HaNeshama, Zevadai, okay, I'll, I'll take some questions in a minute. I just want to finish up the Neshama's reply to this. Zevadi, this is for sure. It's true that understanding demands a process of, of investigation which is accurate and, 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 um, and objective. And in order to really understand something properly, it has to be categorized correctly. Because if the things are not categorized correctly, you sometimes bring proofs from places that are not proofs altogether. And it just creates a lot of confusion. In order to understand things, and what's created from them. Now, the Alpha Pisha Machshava El Yone in Darka Kedarka Bene Yadam, Ashiyu Shaykhim Bahilukim Ayla, Avalanachim Bene Yadam, Srikhim Ladabe Bederch Bene Yadam. 
Ramesh Chaim Latata says that even though who says that all of this categorization is is uh, you know on the godly on the godly planes there are different ways of understanding things. But for us who live down here, it's very important that we remain consistent and logical in the ways that we understand things. Right? The fact that, that God understands things in one particular way has no bearing on how we understand things. We have to function in the way that we understand things. Right? And to put things in accurate categories in order to make appropriate comparisons as opposed to inappropriate comparisons is a very critical thing in the process of of learning. Let's just take a little more and then I'll take your question because I want to touch on, on one thing here. Now, I'm going to tell you even more than you just said now. Okay? I'm going to tell you about this. There's no question that if God wanted to, God could have created this world in a way, He could have created this world in a way that we wouldn't know heads from tails. We wouldn't know where something began and where something ended, what was the cause and what was the effect. In other words, God wasn't restricted to creating a world in a way that we can analyze it. God could have created a world that the whole thing would have been a mystery. He could have created the world in a way that we wouldn't even have access to even beginning to understand the whole process of creation, the elements of creation, the program of creation as we discussed it last week, that part of the program of creation is that everything should operate to reveal His oneness. God didn't have to create the world this way. And God could have created the world as a total mystery. And there wouldn't be a person that would be able to open up their mouth. They would be baffled. The world could have been created in a way that would have been totally baffling to man. And people wouldn't be able to make an opinion or a theory or a thesis or a premise about anything of creation. Because God could have created the world in a very, very mysterious way. Because God's limitless forms of creation, there, there are many of them here, let me explain what Ramash Khan Latsat is saying and then I'll take some questions. What Ramash Khan Latsat is saying over here is a very interesting concept. He's saying over here that the fact that we can sit and we can try to understand the world and we can under analyze and that the world can become uh, a stepping stone to understanding God was also part of Hashem's plan. In other words, God purposely created the world in a way 
that doors are left open for the person to be able to go into those doors or shut those doors either way and to find or not find the creator that's behind the world. In other words, God could definitely have created the world in a way that it would be been such a mystery to man that man couldn't have even begun to understand the whole process or the function or the purpose. It was possible for God to do it that way. It didn't have to be that it's it's open to discussion and open to theory and open to everything else. But that would have defeated God's purpose because God's purpose in, in all of his creation is that man should be able to reach God. So therefore, when God created the world, God said within the world that I'm going to place you in. I'm going to give you the ability, if you so choose to, to find me. Right. Now, does that mean that it's, it's out on the, on the pavement and you just pick it up and there's God? No. There's, there's, there's a two and there's a pro and a con. You can dismiss the evidence or you can admit the evidence. You can want to look at the evidence or you could want to push the evidence away. But there was a commitment on God's part. There was a commitment on God's part that man should have an access an understanding of him. And where was that expressed? One of the places that that was expressed was in all of what God created. Right. Now, this is expressed in our Chazal in a very interesting way. This is expressed in a very interesting way. And let me give you a mashal. Let me give you an example of this. One has to understand exactly what our sages meant when they said this. But the, the Gemara... The Talmud says in Sanhedrin that, for instance, as one example, there are many examples of this, but um, the Talmud in Sanhedrin says that when Korach began his machloikis, when he began his fight against Moshe Rabbeinu and the divinity of Torah ultimately, you know, and the whole thing that... So it says that the sun came before God, whatever that's supposed to mean, and said, I don't want to go out tomorrow. I don't want to go out and do my job tomorrow. Shemesh v'yarech, Amit v'zvulai, the Gemara says that the sun and the moon said, we're on strike. If Kairach can do what he's doing and fight against Moshe and fight against the divinity of Tyre, we're on strike. We don't want to go out to work tomorrow. Now, what is that supposed to mean? I, of course, it means very, very deep things which we're not going to even touch on. Not that I even know. But on the simplest level, let's deal with it on two levels. On the simplest level, what the Shemesh and the Yerech were saying were the following. What was Kairach's argument? Kairach's argument was that everybody is the same. Everybody is equal. Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron are developing a system that they are leaders and they are Rebbeim and then they are teachers. No, kolam kulam kedoshim. Everybody is equal. Everybody is the same. Everybody is equal. So the Shemesh and the Erech said, Nah, you fool, Kairach. Why don't you look at creation? Look at creation itself. In creation itself, you see that there's a hierarchy. There's a system. Does everything give sunlight? Does everything give rays of light? Does everything make grow? Or do some things nurture growth and some things receive the nurturing to grow? There's a relationship. The sun gives off the light, which helps the plant grow. So the sun is a giver, and the, and the plant is a receiver. So all of nature is really a proof to the fact that there is this relationship of, 
of the one that's mashpia and the one that's a mushpa. Now the mashpia itself is also a mushpa. We're not going to get into that. But what the sun and the moon were saying is, Kerech's not using the world that he, that was given to him. Everything in the world is a mushal, is an example on on God and God's conduct and and God's ratzon and God's will. All these things are examples. So what the Shemesh and the Yerech are saying is, what if if we're here and they, the, the lessons not learnt, what's our purpose? To, what's our purpose to, for being here? We're going on strike. Right? We're going on strike. Another example. Right? I'll tell you in a minute what what the boss said about that. But uh, another example. The Chazal say that there was a period of time where people worshipped the sun and the moon. So the sun and the moon came with a taina, who came with an argument before God. If this is if if all we are is a stumbling block for people, we'd rather not go out. We're going on strike. Now, what does that mean? All these things that the sun and the moon are going on strike, let's not understand it simplistically that the sun is a person and he belongs to a union and he's saying, I'm going on strike. What it means is that the Bria was saying that we were created for a purpose and our purpose is not being fulfilled. In other words, we are there as educational tools, we are there as a ladder for the person to grow and the person is not using us as a ladder for growth but the opposite, using us you taking the sun and the moon as as a proof away from God, as a, instead of a growth process towards God, for that there's no purpose for our existence. In other words, every single thing in creation is intended to be a ladder, a stepping stone to be able to come closer to God. So the sun and the moon are saying that's our sustenance, that's our reason to exist. But if the if the if the bria, if if people in the world are taking us in the opposite direction. What do we need to exist for? What's our purpose of existence? So what's God's answer in both those cases? Well, God said, tomorrow is a day of work. Tomorrow is not a strike. You've got to go and do your job. And essentially the spirit that the Chazal say is one spirit. Sadikim Yehuba or Yishayim Yikashluba. Which means, Yisharim Dark Hashem. The ways of Hashem are straight. Which means that in everything in creation there's a way of seeing God if one is, is, it wants to see and if one wants to analyze and one wants to come to that realization, one sees it. Yisharim Dark Hashem, the ways of Hashem are straight. God didn't put man on a, on a, on a, on a system of confusion. And Ramaj Chaim Latzat is backing it up because Ramaj Chaim Latzat is saying, because if God wanted to confuse man, God didn't even have to give man enough of a grasp to be able to make a theory. God could have created the world in a way that it would have been so baffling that he couldn't have even opened up his mouth. But what did God want? God wanted that man should understand. God wanted that. But God lays it in front of the person and it has to be the choice of the person to see it, to struggle with it, as opposed to it just being thrown at him because of the Bechira process, because of the necessity of the Bechira process. And that's essentially what Rimash Chaim Latzat is saying. Now, where else does this come up? Let me give you one more example of this, of this concept, and I'll show you an implication and then I'll take questions. The Gemara says, it's in Perkei Avis, the that, that God could have really created the world with one saying he could have created the whole world. With one saying he could have created the whole world. 
and why not? All right. All right. But he could have created the world but he created it he created it with ten different mamaris. What does that mean? What does that mean? Now picture it for a minute. If God would have created the world with one mimer, you know what that means? God would have said, I want a world. And then what? All of a sudden, everything would have been there. That would have been a baffling state. That would have been a baffling state. Because then even the evolutionist wouldn't know what to do with it. What do you do with it? One minute, nothing. And the next minute, everything is there. That's baffling. That then you have to tackle creation ex nihilo without any kind of without any kind of a grasp whatsoever. Just yesh mayayin. Right. On the other hand, but but God didn't want to do it that way. God created the world which means that there was a system. There was an order. Now, God didn't have to create the world with systems and orders. He doesn't have to have an organized desk. He could have created the whole world all at once. But by creating it with systems, creating it with orders, it lends itself to man to understand. If there's systems and there's orders and you can analyze it and you can categorize it and there's species and there's forms and there are different, they're different, um, they're different relationships of different created things to each other. The fact that there are systems and orders facilitates the way we function in terms of understanding things. They didn't have us get a grasp of what's going on over here. Right? It helps us. Does it guarantee us that we're going to be able to see God? No. It doesn't guarantee. Because once there's a system or once there's an order, you can either say, wow, this is a proof that there's a Bayre because who could have thought of such a marvelous system and order other than a creator? Or you can come up with some kind of narishkeit that since you see a sequence and you see an order, so this is how it began and then 10 billion years this happened and then another 5 million years later this happened. So the fact that there is a sequence and an order which means God is letting himself down, so to speak, to giving it over to us in our ways of understanding it so we can either take it back and understand the, the greatness of God or we can say since it's definable in sequences and orders and categories which are all human things ah I know exactly how it happened there's no God here altogether this evolved from this and this evolved from this but the kavana the intent of the orders and the sequences was so that man should be able to have a grasp and shouldn't be totally baffled and should be able to to comprehend in the wonder of order and the wonder of systems that that itself is a proof to, to creation. I mean, Rav Dessel says it very eloquently in a place. Rav Dessel says that science says that something that happens consistently is a proof that it, 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 God is not connected to it. And Rav Dessel says if you analyze it for a moment, it's the exact opposite. Because something that goes, marches on with with remarkable consistency and precision from hundreds of years and thousands of years without a change. That's not a proof that there is no creator. If anything, it's a proof that there is. How many things that we do, can we establish them that they should run with such system, with such order? Yesharim Dakeshem. The ways are straight. Tzadikim Yelchuba, Rosham Yikashuba. 
Now, what's the point of this whole thing? What Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is trying to point out over here is the following. And this is a very big yesod, a very big principle that Rav Sajigayim talks about, and the Chavos Alvavis talks about, and the Meir Nebuchim talk about, Maimonides talks about. There's one principle that the Amuna, and this is a, it's a broad statement, the Amuna, the belief in God, and the ability to see God is something which is accessible. And there was a commitment on God's part to make it accessible. That doesn't mean that it's, 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 it's guaranteed that man's going to pick it up. It has a lot to do with man's wanting to see it. But it's totally accessible. Rip Sajigayan writes in the introduction to his major work on Emuna, which is equivalent to Maimonides' Guide to the Perplexed, he says, you know, he says, I'm going to begin a work all about proving all of the basic principles of belief, and you're going to wonder why I'm getting into this. Uh, don't we get into trouble if we talk about these things and so on and so forth? And then he proceeds to say that we have an obligation to do this. And he says, one of the things that we suffer from is that we feel that within Yiddishkeit we don't have all of the answers to the arguments against us. So therefore, because we're scared that we don't have all of the answers, we're afraid to get into discussion because in discussion we'll be exposed to the questions without the answers. Or, and, and we'd rather just keep it under wraps, the whole thing. I'm just taking it as a package and I'm not getting involved in it. Rav Sajigayin says that's a mistake. Rav Sajigayin says that a person has to know that there is virtually nothing in terms of our principles of belief, in terms of our amuna that cannot be concretized al piseichel. And one doesn't have to be a... That doesn't mean that just because it is that way that we all have access to it and we're all equipped to do it. But nobody should walk around with the notion that there are parts of our emuna that can be challenged and cannot, and the challenge cannot be returned. Rav Sajigayin says that's not true. Why? So Rav Sajigayin says because Hashem's commitment is that man should understand him. And if that's his commitment, he made the world in a way that man has an access to that. If Hashem wants us to know him, he, then he made the world in a way that it's possible to know. It's not. Now, does that mean that we can know everything about Hashem? No. Rav Chaim Lutzat himself says that we can't know everything about Hashem. But Rav Chaim Lutzat says a very, uh, a very remarkable statement. He says, you don't have to know everything about Hashem. In other words, our amuna doesn't require that we have to have the ultimate definition of Hashem's essence. We don't need to know the ultimate definitions. Uh, we can't know them and we don't need to know them. But we, know, we have the ability to know enough about Hashem to establish all of our amunas, all of our principles of belief, and all of the implications in terms of keeping the Torah and the mitzvahs and our growth and our commitment and our mission and where we're headed and where the world's headed, all of that is contained within it. It's not chaser. It's not absent. Right? And that's something that's important to keep in mind. It's not... Now, I might not know enough. I might not be skilled enough. I might not be exposed to enough of it to be able to, 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 to get up in, into a, a challenge with somebody about it. But the notion should never be that it's, you know, there are gray areas, there are hidden areas, there are things that we weren't told or we weren't explained or we can't understand. And we can be stumped, right? 
we can be stumped because of a lack of knowledge, but not because the knowledge is not available. That's that's the yisoid that Reb Sadi going to. It's a very big yisoid. It's a very big principle, and Reb Moshe Chaim is echoing that. Reb Moshe Chaim is saying that God had a commitment that there should be an access to Him, and this is all consistent with what we're saying because. God has an involvement with his world and the Shlemus Adam comes from man's ability to understand God and to find God. And you have to realize something else also. God is a realist. God can't ultimately expect the highest levels of our connection to him unless God can be real for us at least in our human terms. For us to... to to function in 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 um, in a permanently blind state that cannot be unfolded and cannot be revealed uh, is not realistic. Our Chazal say it in a very interesting way. Our Chazal say, God doesn't put a, a package on a person that's too much for the person to carry. What does that mean? In other words, if God would be so unreal and so inaccessible, God wouldn't have expectations of us in terms of a relationship with tzivuyim and commandments and everything else. Because I'm living in fantasy land. I'm doing things for a fantasy, for something that I can't grasp in any kind of a real way. That's not real. For, For there to be authentic expectation... We have to be able to have at least a human access to the reality of Hashem. Not necessarily the ultimate access to the reality, but at least the human access. Because a human being needs that. A human being needs to be able to sense it. Now, it's very possible that a person goes through mitzvahs without thinking twice about it, and goes through it with rote, and goes through it because they were always trained to do it that way. But that's not real Avedis Hashem. Real Avedis Hashem is when a person thinks about what they're doing and thinks to do it with a commitment, with a, with a feeling. There's a Bayrei Eilam and I'm in Oyved. I'm worshipping, I'm serving that Bayrei Eilam. Now, if the, the whole master is a vague concept, so then the Evid has to be a vague concept. How can I be an Evid to a master who's vague? The whole, if the master is vague, so the evidence has to be vague. You know, if I don't know who my boss is, who can I be working for? Right. So there's no there's no concept of avodas Hashem unless there's some clarity of master. Our, again, our Chazal say it. It's not my idea. The Chazal say it. Do we have two portions of Shema? The first portion of Shema is Shema Yisrael, and then the second parsha is Vahayim Shemaya. What are they called? The first one is Kabbalah Soel Malchus Shabayim, and the second one is called Kabbalah Soel Mitzvahs. What does that mean? The first one is accepting the whole concept of God and God's rulership and involvement in the world. And then the second one is the concept of accepting God's commands. Right? So our Chazal talk about the fact that why don't we go straight to the mitzvahs? We're practical. We live in we, in a mechanized society. Give me the bottom line. All right, what do I have to do? So the Chazal say, no. No, you can't get to the bottom line. Kablu malchusai. First, you have to accept the notion of a master. Va'achakach kablu gzeiraisai. And the nature of gzeiraisai can't be stronger than the malchusai. 
Now, it's sometimes true that through the doing the mitzvahs, one comes to realize more malchusei. I'm not saying that that's not true. But ultimately, when we talk about it, we're talking about a relationship. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the master, the rav, the rabbi, and we're the avadim. There's a relationship over there. And if the master is not clear to us, then the avdus is not clear. Right? And that's why the, the, the realness of Hashem is not, you know, is not like a cherry on top. The whole, you, know, you know where this comes up? Where does this come up? Right? So we think that it only comes up in philosophy. That's what Yerash Shemayim is. Yerash Shemayim, we say it in English, we call it the fear of heaven. But what really is Yerash Shemayim? What Yerash Shemayim is, is creating the, the atmosphere and the sense of the realness of Hashem. That's what Yerash Shemayim is. Once it's real, everything follows. I mean, when I go ahead and I do something which is opposite of the will of Hashem, the Gemara says, how does a person do it? With a ruach shtus, with an ear of, of, arrog- uh, of stupidity. What does that mean, with an ear of stupidity? He has to at least temporarily create a state for himself that Hashem is not real. Hashem doesn't care, or Hashem is not here, or Hashem is busy with other things. You have to make Hashem unreal. But if Hashem is really real in the definition of who He is, then everything else follows. In the same way that I might be tempted to do something when my father or mother are not looking, but when they're looking, I won't think of it. There's something compelling when I know that He's looking. Right? There's something compelling. So how do we do it? He's not looking. The function of Yerushalayim, the function of Yerushalayim is to sense that he's really looking. The Shavisi Hashem he's there, he's looking. What I'm doing is important. What I'm doing is is something that is is uh, against his will or uh, or in in concert with his will. That there's an involvement. There's a realness. That's what Yerushalayim is. So what I'm talking about, it sounds very philosophical, understand God, the realness of God. But the truth of the matter is, it's the component of Yerushalayim. Who's the person that really is a Yerushalayim? A person who psychologically or emotionally is nervous? That's not Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim means that he, has, he, has, he really believes in the realness of Hashem. Hashem is there, Hashem is looking... Hashem is disappointed in what I'm going to be doing now. Things of that nature. And to really feel it. And that's a, that's a whole thing. You know, Hashem is... Ne- you don't see Hashem. You know, who says He's looking? So to create the situation of really feeling the realness of Hashem. But that's really what Yerushalayim is all about. Right? Now, I make Hashem real, but I don't know what Hashem is. So I, I'm, again, short. Right? So a person wakes up one day and says, uh, I want to have Yerushalayim. I really don't know anything about God, but I believe He's looking at me. I don't know who He is. I don't know what His values are. I don't know what He's interested in, but He's looking at me. So, what? It doesn't mean anything. So the year of Shemayim also needs a definition. What does Hashem want? What are Hashem's values? What are Hashem's hopes for me? How does Hashem feel? What are Hashem's commitments to me? What are His promises to me? What are my promises to Him? It needs a whole, whole definition. 
I'm just trying to make this a little bit more real so that it doesn't sound abstract and philosophical. It's really the bread and butter of, of what Yiddishkeit is. That, that's what it is. And where there isn't any Yiddish Shemayim, I'm functioning in a, in a very non-real way. I might be going through actions and everything, but do you really believe that it makes a difference? Do you, do you really believe that somebody's watching this? Do you know what I'm saying? So, for, for rewards, it doesn't hurt to believe. But when it comes to the negative, who says? I mean, that's the nature. Why? It doesn't cost anything to believe that Hashem is looking when I'm doing something good. But where it's a challenge to me, and where it's hard to do the thing, or hard to stay away from the thing, so then it's much easier to believe that He's really not. That He's really not there. That's who, that's, that's a, that's a little bit, this gives us a little bit, uh, you know, it's, <clears throat> if you think of it, the whole thing is very bound up with everything else. Since Hashem is interested in us, He's interested in our, in our good, He's interested in our development, it automatically means that He has to be there for us to understand. Because otherwise it's an unrealistic expectation of us. So in the statement that Hashem is in is 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 out for our best interest, in this that statement, Hashem is out for our best interest, already lies that Hashem is saying, I'm going to show myself to you. I'm going to make myself accessible to you. Because if Hashem wouldn't be accessible, so then 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 the, the Hashem is expecting us to live in a fantasy land and to function in fantasy land. That's not real. That's not real. That's not real and it can't add up to anything. All right, I'll take some questions now. So how do you view like, the negative situations that one finds oneself in uh, in life? I mean, uh, as, as every single day in, in, in life. So Rav Meshachayim Mutsata says that they're, they're, they're there, okay, and this he's going to develop this more, but Rav Meshachayim Mutsata says that they are there in order for the person, through the experience, through the exposure, through the challenge, or whatever have you, of getting a deeper insight into, into, into what's expected of him or what's valuable. I know this by the fact that the person is uh, exposed to all of these different situations, there's a depth of insight that he gets from those experiences. And that depth of insight is, is extremely valuable. The Yiras Shemayim, the Yiras Shemayim doesn't happen all at once. It's a process that the person learns. It's, a, it's something that a person, be, you know, let's put it this way. If, if it's more than this, but it, even in the simplest form, the fact that Hashem makes certain claims about the things that are valuable and the things that are not, okay? And I then go through the experiences of trying to find out for myself or being exposed to those things myself and then come to realize you know he was really right you know that that very fact itself is aside of the fact that the particular thing I now know it's right or wrong it also gives me the appreciation of Hashem I know that when Hashem says something is valuable it's been proven it's been proven to me through my experience that he's right alright so the allowance for negative things in the world have a very big function because they prove Hashem's claim. 
In other words, sometimes man is not willing to accept the claim of many different things, but the fact that the person goes his own way and then sees the deprivation or sees the destruction or the degeneration of his own way, so when he comes out of the experience, he's not only learned that this particular thing is not right, but he's also learned that when Hashem makes a claim about one thing being life and the other thing being death, I better believe it. So then it becomes a gilu in Hashem. It becomes a revelation, not only in terms of an activity or a behavior, but it becomes a revelation. I now know something about Hashem in a deeper way. Right? And essentially, most of the things that happen to a person have to be seen not only in terms of the value of the thing themselves, but what they teach me about Hashem. Right? And that's really what the concept, if one wants to analyze it, that's really what the concept of Shira is. What's Shira? Let's touch on this for a moment. The Gemara says that there are ten essential Shirais, ten essential songs. Nine were already sung, and a tenth one will be sung when Mashiach comes. There are ten Shirais. The Shira that we say in the morning, that Klal Yisrael sang, the Shira by the Be'er. There are many Shiras. The Shira of David, the Shira of Chana. There are many different Shiras. Now, there's no question that through the thousands of years of Jewish history, Jews sang Shira more than ten times. There's no question about it. Right? What's the uniqueness of these ten times, these ten Shirais, nine that were and the tenth that will be? Well, let me give you another example. The Medrash says that until Klal Yisrael sang Shira, when they went through the Yamsuf, Shira was never sung before. Now, let me ask you, when Avram came out of the furnace alive, you don't think that he sung a praise to Hashem? And when Yaakov came down to Mitzrayim and saw that Yosef was still alive, you don't think that he sung a praise to Hashem? But the Medrash says that, like, that nobody ever sang to Hashem until Klal Yisrael was taken out of Mitzrayim. Now what is that supposed to mean? Let me give you another Medrash. There's another Medrash who, that says that Shira is Mechaper. That if a person does a virus and then he goes through a process of shira, of song, to Hashem, that purifies the person. It's a kapara. Like a carbon is a kapara. Where does the Gemara prove this from? The Gemara proves this from the Navi. Because in the Navi it says, if one is familiar with the, the shayftim, with the judges, at the beginning of every... The, what was the sequence? Klal Yisrael did certain things and they went away from Hashem. They were punished. Then a judge came on the scene gave the Musser, straightened up the situation, and then the judge died. The judge died, Kal Yisrael again fell away. Right? So there are many chapters in the judges that begin with Vayosef Yisrael Lachtai, and the Jew added on and continued sin. The judge died. The judge wasn't there. The, the spiritual inspiration wasn't there. The Jew fell. So it says Vayosef, Vayosef. In one place, at the beginning of the parak, when it's going to start talking about Klal Yisrael falling away after the Misa, after the death of the judge, it doesn't say Vayasif. It just says that Klal Yisrael began to sin. Not that they continued sin, but they began. Which the Medrash says is an indication that whatever the slate was from before, it was taken away. It's not a continuation, but it's a new. What's the distinction? So the Medrash says, because at the end of the last parak, they sang Shira. And Shira is Machakar. And song is mechaper. Now, wh what's so unique about song that it cleanses, that it's mechaper? 
So the answer is like this. And this is based in a Svasemis. The concept of Shira is the following. There's no doubt that in every situation, when a person is uh, motivated to sing, it's because something has happened. But there's two aspects. There's the aspect of the thing that happened, which I'm happy about, so now I want to sing. There's another aspect to it. This thing that happened, the side of the personal benefit or the personal salvation, is also deepening my relationship to Hashem because now I understand something about Hashem through what has happened that I didn't know before. It's a connection to Hashem. And the connection to Hashem motivates a level of happiness. I know something about Hashem that I didn't know before. I can feel something about Hashem. Hashem is real to me in an aspect that He wasn't before. And that motivates me to singing. So there's a motivation to sing that's on a personal level. I was in a crisis and I was saved from a crisis. Thank you, Hashem. I'm happy. That's for the personal gain that was to me. But then there's a deeper level. The deeper level is that my happiness extends beyond the personal gain, but my happiness lies in the fact that now I have a, 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 a kesher, a bond to Hashem, due to a deeper understanding of something of Hashem, and that's what makes me happy. And my happiness comes from that. The word shira, the Svas Emes says, is really the word shura, which means a straight line which means that I have a straight line to Hashem. I had, in other words, by virtue of what's happened beyond the personal gain. I know something about Hashem now that I didn't know before, and the delight of knowing that, and the relationship that's created because of it, is what he creates the Shira. That is a machaper. The fact that I can feel that kesher to Hashem and I'm delighted and I'm excited in that, that's an emotion that cleanses the person. That's a cleansing factor in the person. So of course there were people that always said shira in terms of personal crisis and what they got out of the crisis. But the Chazals say that there were ten major events, nine which happened, and the tenth that will happen that give us a, a particular kesher to Hashem and the, the song is motivated from the happiness of that connection to Hashem. That's what the, that's, do you follow what I'm saying? That's what the shira is. And that again is consistent. That is again consistent with what we're talking about over here. Right? That's really the function. It's an engaging process. See, most of us think that, that Hashem is in the world of fantasy that we believe in and that everything that we function in is out of, out of the function of the fantasy of Hashem. I believe in this, but it's really in the realm of fantasy. It's really not that way. It's an engaging process of being able to try to feel more and more the realness. If a Jew wakes up and says, I want to feel Hashem in a more real way, then the Jew is on the right track in terms of wanting to grow. That's a sign of wanting to grow. The person that says he wants to sense the realness, he wants to sense it, and he wants to do that which will create that realness, that's the person that's that's doing it in a way that he's going to grow. But the person that suffices himself, I really don't know who Hashem is, and I'll tell you the truth, half the time, even though I mouth the fact that I believe in Hashem, but I really don't believe that He's right there, and I really don't feel on an emotional level that He's looking at me. 
and I just go through it because that's what I was taught to do and so on and so forth. It's all fantasy. It's not real. And if it's not real, if there's not a sense of realness in it, you can't grow in it. You can only grow in it, it can only become engaging, and it can only become rewarding, and it can only become pleasurable, and it can only have a sense of fulfillment if I can feel that there's a realness to it. And that's the distinction between somebody who is an Oved Hashem and somebody who is not an Oved Hashem. Somebody who really serves Hashem. What's the distinction? Not in how many things you do, but in the realness that you feel in why you're doing it. That's, that's where the distinction lies. And the, to concentrate on making that more real, how do we make it more real, that's the function of the Oved Hashem. If it's in concentration and tefillah, or if it's dedicating oneself honestly to a mitzvah, or introspecting on, on, on motivations and purity of motivation, or if it's dealing with certain limitations in terms of personality things which, which prevent me from opening up or prevent me from being who I am. Whatever they are, there are many different areas. But the construct of all of it, like I told, like we spoke about it weeks ago, it's to create a realness. The, the Ramban, the intention of creation is that we should come to a point that we can feel the realness that we are cre- the created beings of Hashem. That's the Tachlas Abriya. And we should feel the realness of it. Everything else comes after that. In other words, after that, everything flows. And sometimes we need to do things in order to create the realness. But ultimately, the relationship is that there's a, there's a master and there's an abbot. Right? I'm just trying to make this, you know, that it's, it might sound like it's, you know, like who knows what. It's a new idea, but really it's not. It's just that we take everything so for granted. You know, this is what I have to do and this is what I don't want to do. Take it or leave it. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. He's looking, he's not looking. I believe he's looking, I believe he's not looking. Yeah. Before you said that um, the attributes of Hashem's Yechidus to understand it, the way to understand the attribute of Yechidus is because of the exclusivity, Hashem's exclusivity, right? It's a definition of the attribute, and you need a definition of the attribute, but the but the exclusiveness of the attribute. Whereas with any other attribute, you, you don't understand it through the exclusiveness of it. Right. And then the example you get was being smart or Hashem's wisdom. But isn't that really a fine? I mean, like to understand Hashem's wisdom the way I think of it, like He is the smartest being. I mean, isn't that like also being? That's true? exclusiveness. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. That's so the definition. Diff- then there's really no difference. But that's not. No, I'll tell you what the difference is. When you say that God is the smartest. Right. Are you really sinking your teeth into an appreciation of wisdom? I'm, I'm not of wisdom. Are you I'm being enthralled? Yechidus. But are you being enthralled by his wisdom? By his wisdom? Yes. Well, to the very not really. Well, I can't only to the not really. Right. Wisdom myself. Right. Right. So but you're but not. But be, that's the point. That's what Rabbi Shmuelitzat is saying. I'm being enthralled by the exclusiveness, not by the wisdom. I'm not enthralled by, huh? Why, how am I being more enthralled by Hashem's fact that He's the smartest being, more so than I understand that He's that His smartness is unique. I mean, what? what, what All right. Now you're asking another question, which is a good question. If I understand you correctly, in the question that you're asking, you're asking what 
what uh, what is so motivating and inspiring about ex- Hashem being exclusive? Another is that what you're asking? In other words, I, it's very important to know that Hashem is unique. But does uniqueness really turn me on as much as any particular attribute and having an appreciation of a particular attribute? Well, is, that what, is, that, is that what you're driving at? That's what because, I understood your because, question is. Because really... I mean, why should I be enthralled right, with uniqueness? So many few people understand this ultimate goal that you're talking about. Or so many few people reach it that um, apparently the accessibility. I'll tell. I'll 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 try to give you a little bit of uh, a a tam, a a little bit of a grasp of it, because I I relate to the question very well. In other words, let's let's. Maybe it's not precisely what you're asking, but I think in the answer maybe there'll be there'll there'll be something that's addressing what you what uh, what you're raising over here. In what way am I inspired to grow, or why is that such a a significant and dominant aspect of Hashem? to know that he's unique. Why? It, uh, seemingly, one could argue that if Hashem would give me the brains to understand, let's say Hashem has 50 levels. He has many. He has limitless levels. But if Hashem would only give me a 220 IQ instead of 160 IQ, then I could really appreciate Hashem because, because then there's an appreciation. Why didn't Hashem create it? I'm just saying we have to have rod to build up to a process. So I'm saying, why didn't it start? Why does it have to be rod? Why there are many degrees? Well, the rod, the part of it, we'll have to wait for because we didn't even get to it in the text yet. He's going to get into that part of it. But let me make a statement. It's going to be a very hard thing to swallow, and the, and and the the reason why it's hard to swallow is precisely the reason why we don't relate and why we're not terribly inspired by the concept of exclusiveness and I inc- include myself in this but this, is, this, is, this really deals with, major, with, with a major issue and, and the issue is the following issue Rav Meshachem Lutzatah starts with a premise in the Sefer and I don't know if until this moment we really got the whole punch of what Rav Meshachem Lutzatah was saying Rav Meshachem Lutzatah said that the person is a chaser, he's deficient. And the only way in the world, not one of the ways, but the only way in the world that the person will be able to ascend from his deficiency is by a kurva to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, by a dveikas in Hashem, by a relationship with Hashem, with a closeness to Hashem. Now let's, let's bring that, let's talk mamalashim. Okay, even though that's gonna, that it's gonna hurt our egos. Let's talk mamalashin. What this is saying is that the human being, in and of himself, is a chaser. He has deficiency. In and of himself, he has deficiency. How does he get out of the deficiency? He elevates himself out of his deficiency by his his merging with the essence of Hashem. Is merging with the existence of Hashem. 
Do you follow what I'm saying? It's like a merger with Hashem. He merges into Hashem. Okay? Now this presents all kinds of problems, this word merging with Hashem. Do I lose my identity? And it, it creates a whole slew of problems. But it's a merger. It, I merge into Hashem. And in the merging into Hashem, I become a Shalem. But if I, if I stand my ground and say, I'm not merging, I'll learn this God, I'll do this God, I'll listen to this God, but I'm not interested in merging with Hashem, right? the person will ultimately not reach Shlemus. Now that's, 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 you know, that's, it's, it doesn't do a lot for our egos. On, on one level, it's, it, it sounds like a very big put-down. But what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzate is saying is, the Adam is a chaser. Right? He's a chaser. Now, and he has to merge with Hashem. Now, his merging with Hashem, with the essence of Hashem, is, a, is an intricate process. Just going into a mantra and imagining that you're merging with Hashem is not the Jewish concept of Shlemus. Okay? And this, by the way, is a, a major distinction of a lot of the meditations and a lot of those processes. Merging with Hashem means that there's a lot that you have to do in order to be able to, to facilitate this m- merging into Hashem, coming to Hashem. Right? Now, merging with Hashem, this dveikus in Hashem, man cannot do it without believing in the uniqueness of Hashem. He can't do it. Because if Hashem is not unique, and there are other forces, and there are other things, and there are other values which are significant and, and occupy time, space, and value, maybe less than Hashem, but you know, in, in the same ballpark with Hashem, man can, does not have the ability to, to make this dedication to Hashem of merging with Hashem without believing in the uniqueness of Hashem. He can't. Let me use it as a marshal. Let's say a person believes that God is great, but I'm also great. Right? Which is true. But there's a world of a difference in comparison. I mean, God is great, and in comparison to God, ich bin go- I'm nothing. How many of us really believe that statement? Right? In comparison to God, who am I? How many of us really believe it? We can say it, we can intellectualize it, but how many of us really believe it? We don't. Now, if we don't believe it, how realistically do we dedicate ourselves to wanting to merge with Hashem and really being Dalek with Hashem? If we don't believe that relative to Hashem we are nothing, we don't really believe it, we really don't feel it, can we really want to merge or have the energy to merge with Hashem in the real sense? What do you mean? I'm also a human being. That's psychologically what the person thinks deep down to himself is, Ich bin Mensch. I also exist. What's this merging with Hashem? And who am I? The identity. different degrees, though. I mean, there are different degrees. That's true. And one has to understand that when Rav Moshe Chaim Lissat is talking about Yechidus, as we're dealing with it and we're grappling with it, there are many, many madragas to it. But the reason why we don't have an appreciation why it's an ultimate goal is because we don't have an appreciation of the goal of merging with Hashem. In other words, if we could, in other words, if we can understand that our happiness and our fulfillment and the only thing that I want is to be able to merge with Hashem, then we wouldn't have such a struggle to understand why you, the uniqueness of Hashem is such an enthralling and inspiring concept. 
because that's what makes the whole thing worth it. The uniqueness of Hashem, the exclusiveness of Hashem wants that I should become closer and closer and closer to Him. That gives me the energy of wanting to come close to Him. It's, it's because we hold our own ground that uniqueness subconsciously gridges at us. It, it bugs us. Forget about it not inspiring us. It bugs us. What do you mean unique? I thought I was unique. It, it, if you analyze it for a minute, that's, that's, that's at the root of it. But once a person begins to grapple with the fact that he's a chaser, and that he needs Hashem, and he needs to come close to Hashem, and, and that's a you're 100% right. Needing Hashem and coming close to Hashem has millions of madrigas, millions of levels. But it's this, it's this total relinquishing of the notion that I can be something without Hashem that ultimately makes this dveikus with Hashem and this fulfillment with Hashem. Once a person begins to grapple with that, then the person begins to realize that the uniqueness of Hashem is the bread and butter. It's the, it's the avir, it's the oxygen within which the person needs to operate. Then it's critical. If I can't, if I can't deal with uniqueness, I mean, like we were talking about Shira before. Take the example of Shira. I was at one level with Hashem. And because I understand something about Hashem, it draws me closer to Hashem. I have a deeper appreciation. I want to be closer because of my n- newer understanding. I want to be closer because of my newer understanding. And there's a delight in that. And that's where the Shira comes. It's a growth process. It's not either I do believe he's exclusive, I don't believe he's exclusive. It's a very, it's, it's, a, it's a big process. But the reason why we don't relate to it at all is because, because we're struggling on the personality level, which again boils down to what I was talking about before. When we talk about being avadim to Hashem, what's an evid? Now, in, in our terms, an evid is translated into English as a servant, if one is nice about it, and if one is not nice about it, a slave. Okay? Now, isn't that ugly? Isn't the concept of a servant ugly in our own minds? Let's not fool ourselves. It is. Okay? Uh, even if it's not the slave in the way that the, 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 the slaves in the South. But isn't the concept of having to work for another person ugly? And the Jew says, I'm a slave of God. I'm a servant of God. Right? Again, that's a tremendous function. Once a person can appreciate that statement, he's well on his way. He's well on his way. But we don't really appreciate that statement. We don't appreciate that statement. We don't appreciate uniqueness either. We can't. Because you, once we start dealing with uniqueness, you know, then, then uniqueness... What does uniqueness say? You don't come near that. Every time you say uniqueness, it's pointing to you too. It's pointing to the greatness of Hashem, but it's also pointing to you in comparison. By definition, unique, uniqueness is the exclusion. Right? There's only so much that we want to exclude. Right? That's, that's where the, the guts of it, why we, don't, why, why we struggle with it, that's, that's where it comes from. It needs a lot of selflessness. You know, it needs a lot of understanding of how much we're missing without it. It needs a selflessness. That I mean, if you want to really get into the guts of it, that's that's where it really lies. Yeah. Right. So it's not 
oh, 100%, I'm just saying where we're coming from, before we reach that level, to us it seems like a tremendous burden in everything. The reality is that when a person realizes the uniqueness and realizes how much they gain from that relationship, it creates a tremendous amount of simcha. But standing from the outside, not yet comprehending that I need this for my fulfillment, it can be a very big drag. It can be a very big oil. But the truth of the matter is, yes, that the true Obed Hashem, you will never find a true Obed Hashem that's cursing under his breath how hard it is to, to be a Jew. You won't find it. You won't find it. A true Obed Hashem thrives with every opportunity. It doesn't mean that it's not difficult to do. But he's not cursing under his breath. It's not. The true Oivet Hashem is not the person that makes these heroic statements about how hard it is. The true Oivet Hashem is engaged. He's involved. He knows that he's getting something that's tremendously valuable. As you mentioned, the Oivet Hashem B'Simcha. But that's a level that takes time, that needs that needs honesty, that needs uh, a willingness to, to let oneself down from one's own pedestal that one has created for themselves. It needs a lot of things. It need, you know, it needs a lot of things. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Let me let me let me um, let me rest rest your worry about about this in the following way. The Egletal says the Egletal was the Apni Nezer. The Egletal says in the um, in the um, I don't know if I have it up here. I must probably do it maybe after the class I'll the Egletal says that a person's delight and enjoyment in his serving Hashem is ultimately the only way that the person will become completely dovuk to Hashem, completely merged with Hashem. The person that uh, walks around with, with uh, a notion that because he's getting so much pleasure from it and everything else, it's self-serving and it's contrary to Avodas Hashem, the Egletal says it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. It's the person who enjoys and feels the fulfillment and feels the satisfaction. It's that person that it becomes muvla bedamav. That's the Egletal's language. It's that person who God becomes absorbed in his blood. That's the person. Because the enjoyment and the happiness and the sense of fulfillment that the person has, that's what makes the absorption into the blood of God into the person. So the Egletal says, don't ever fret that you're, you're involved.